0: Economics Radio is sponsored by Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you are feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
1: It is a very lonely
2: job. I wouldn't want it. 40 hour days, eight days a week.
3: And then
4: boom, they make a decision and everybody's happy.
1: Everybody has some skeletons in their closet.
4: There really isn't a honeymoon period because you are the CEO.
5: Are CEOs born or made? I'm pretty sure it's some combination of both. You know, you you look at the data and there's 10 different recipes for success. Nicholas Bloom, an economist at Stanford, has been studying leadership for years. No one could really give us a straight answer on what to find a good or a bad leader. Sure, there are some people that are better than others, but it's damn hard to tell what it is. We've been spending our time lately interviewing the CEOs
0: of companies like Microsoft and PepsiCo and Facebook. You'd think there'd be some sort of a template for what makes a successful CEO, some set of common characteristics. But as Nicholas Bloom and others have told us... The data tell a different story. It's very hard to pin down just what produces or predicts or even indicates a good CEO. So today on Freakonomics Radio, in the absence of great statistical evidence, we'll go the anthropological route and ask the question, how do you become a CEO? We'll track our CEOs from their beginnings through their ascensions, including how they almost didn't make it.
3: I expected I might get fired. He didn't have the nerve to see me face to face because he knew I would have probably punched him out.
6: And then I had my ass kicked in enough times. And then I, um, yeah.
7: WNYC Studios, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
0: Of the CEOs we've been interviewing, four of them got an MBA from an elite school. Two have law degrees. One has a Ph.D. On the other end of the spectrum, one is a college dropout and one is a high school dropout. I was 16
8: when I started off in business, so I was Virgin at business. You may recognize that voice. Yeah, my name is Richard Branson, and um, what do I do? I do everything Virgin.
0: Now, your title, um, your official title, as far as I can tell, is Founder, Virgin Group. Uh, In addition to that, are you the
8: CEO of anything? I used to be, um, uh, but I've delegated pretty well all the CEO roles. You
0: created your own path and just kept going and kept having ideas, kept trying, failed, didn't let it bother you and so on. But from the original, the the magazine, Student Magazine, which was a culture magazine to record stores, record label, airlines, trains, mobile phone company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know who
8: you might have looked to as a model for that. First of all, I never thought of myself as a business person or, or an entrepreneur. I just... Initially, just thought of myself as an editor and wanted to uh, have a magazine to campaign against the Vietnamese War. But in order for the magazine to survive, I had to worry about printing and paper manufacturing and and distribution and so on. And I sort of became an entrepreneur. And you know, my education uh, was, you know, being in the real world and, and you know, learning the art of survival.
1: I am the only child of two parents who both dropped out of high school. David Rubenstein is a co-founder of the Carlyle Group,
0: one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. Until recently, he was also its co-CEO. He went to Duke University on a scholarship, then law school at the University of Chicago.
1: After a couple years in New York doing corporate law, he moved to Washington. I worked for Ted Sorensen, who had written that great speech for John Kennedy. He helped me get a job, which ultimately led me to the Carter campaign. So at 27, I was the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States, a job I obviously wasn't qualified for.
0: Now, I've read that you stayed late at your job to make sure that your memos were on top of the president's briefing pile.
1: It's— for better or worse, completely true. I would take into the president's private study my memos and bypass the staff system and put my memos on top. So when the president came in in the morning, he would read my memos first because they were on top of the inbox, and that had the advantage of bypassing everybody else's comments on my memos, which uh, was a way of beating the system. It wouldn't be something I would tell my three children it would be a good way to get ahead, Um, but I would say uh, sometimes you do things in life that uh, in hindsight with uh, wisdom and gray hair you realize probably don't look so good.
3: I came from a dairy farm in Wisconsin. My mom died when I was eight, so I was very motivated. All was to do well, the good girl.
0: That's Carol Bartz. She was CEO of the software firm Autodesk for 14 years and later CEO of Yahoo.
3: I actually was very fortunate to get a computer science degree from the University of Wisconsin in 1971. Good timing. And I fell into a world that I just loved and I could continue in that world uh, for, you know, the next 40 years. Mm.
0: Um, talk for just a minute about how being a woman affected your career, if you if you can um, kind of measure that uh, input.
3: First of all, it was easier in the beginning because not many people had computer science degrees. And so... They didn't care if you were orangutan. You could, you you know, get a job, because they didn't understand what was going on, and they thought maybe you could help them. Unfortunately, though, at that time, I walked into a mess of typical bad men uh, that you read about today. But I was a tough farm girl, so I didn't let too much. <laughs> get in the way.
0: You mean bad in a sexually harassing kind of way, or in oh, a absolutely, discre- yeah, oh, uh-huh. absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, when I was at three M, the guys that I worked with called me Carl because they didn't want their wives to know they were traveling with a female. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that, of course, wasn't harassing me. It was just kind of an indicator of how the world was. And you know, as time went on, and I was able to move. Up, I was fortunate enough to have some very good mentors and leaders that believed in me, and um, and I was ornery.
9: I think I'm a product of two amazingly unique American things. That's Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. The first is. This technology uh, that reached me where I was growing up that even made it possible uh, for me to dream the dream. And then the enlightened American immigration policy uh, that would be like to debate, but it allowed me uh, to come here in the first place and live the dream. Only in America would a story like mine be possible in addition
0: to you, the CEOs of Google, Adobe, MasterCard, and many other big American firms are Indian American often immigrants like yourself. How do you account for that massive success
9: well i I, I mean of, of those companies other than the uh, Sundar at Google, uh, we all went to the same high school even so i don 't know maybe <laughs> it was the water <laughs> um, but um, i first of all, I think um, it's sort of one of those uh, false positives that you can take too much uh, out of, right? Which is, I think each of us had our own unique story and a unique path. It's, after all, a country with billion people.
0: But a relatively low immigration rate for most of the immigration. Uh,
9: that is correct. I think what you're seeing here is that there was this tech boom, especially in the early, starting in the early 90s. Uh, There was a good supply of uh, engineering graduates out of uh, the country and demand meets supply. And uh, the enlightened immigration policy, I think, is what made it possible.
4: I think it's because we are products of an Indian education system at the high school and the undergraduate level, which is all in English.
0: That's Indra Nui, the CEO of PepsiCo. She's also Indian, and I had asked her the same question.
4: All of us uh, grew up with a family that basically valued education over anything else. And I think that's what allowed us to come here and be successful, too.
10: Yeah, I think my dad has a lot of fun stories about how he got me into technology.
0: That's Mark Zuckerberg, founder and CEO of Facebook.
10: He uh, took a lot of pride in being, you know, the first dentist in the area who did digital x-rays instead of physical ones. And he's just uh, such a geek. But he was always just like, Mark, don't you think this is cool? I mean, I think my my sisters were happy enough to play the games that I programmed growing up, Mm -hmm. right? So they prefer like playing a snowball fight game or some strategy game that I made, even if the graphics were terrible and the Uh game wasn't that good, right? Because I was still learning how to program. I was like 12 or 13 or 14. They'd prefer that to getting chased around the house Uh with a super soaker. (laughs) You probably already know that Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. 10 years ago, you know, I was just trying to help connect people at, at colleges and a few schools. He's probably the most accidental CEO we spoke with. Yeah, well, I never started this to build a company. At 33, Zuckerberg
0: is also the youngest CEO we interviewed. The oldest, at 82, is Jack Welch, former longtime CEO of General Electric. Treating
11: everybody the same is ludicrous. And I don't
0: buy it. Welch joined GE in 1960 with a Ph.D. in chemical engineering.
11: It was a different era. Well, let's start with differentiation. I learned differentiation when I was 11 years old in a playground. And the other guys were 15 and 16. And what happens to the worst player? He picks last and he goes to right field. That's differentiation. I mean, that hasn't changed in my mind from the day, the first day I went to the playground.
0: Welch spent his whole 40-year career with GE, the last 20 as its CEO. Uh,
11: It's not cruel and Darwinian and things like that that people like to call it. A baseball team publishes every day the batting averages, and you don't see the 180 hitter getting all the money or all the raises. Athletics is the purest form of differentiation because it's public. Business is more subtle, and and it's more qualitative. So the precision isn't there to differentiate. So judgment's important. But you don't win with a gang of mediocre players in business or in baseball. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to be in the loser's locker room or the winner's locker room? What's more fun When you look back at your
0: tenure at GE, you had an awful lot of different issues, controversies, occasional crises. You had financial, you had environmental, you had some involving personnel. Walk me through what felt at the time like the worst one and how you addressed it. Well, I blew up a factory. Yeah, that was early on, right? Early on. And and tell the story about how your boss, or who, maybe it wasn't your immediate boss. My uh, immediate
11: boss didn't know me. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> he made sure he got away from me, <laughs> and I blew the roof off the factory. Fortunately, no one was killed. Yeah. And I was called out to New York to explain what happened by my boss's boss's boss. So I met this guy really for the first time. This guy named Charlie Reed, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Good for you. You did some homework. All right. You're expecting what from Charlie now? I didn't know him, so I didn't know what to expect, but I expected I might get fired. Yeah. I drove down to my Volkswagen from Pittsfield. I met Charlie, and all he did, it turns out he was a Ph.D., chemical engineer from MIT. So he took me to the Socratic method. Do you know why it happened? What would you do differently? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? And he was coaching me, and he was couldn't be nicer. And I learned from that and never kick anybody when they're down. Mm. Kick them when they start to swell, but don't kick somebody when they're down. And did, Charlie did a hell of a job of coaching me through the error I made in blowing <laughs> oxygen through benzene without enough grounding and you think that changed the
0: way that you managed going forward, right? That was, you know, almost 20 years before you took over. Yeah, but it changed my life forever. From the outside, it's tempting to assume that the path of chief executive has been a straight line, a procession of victories, small and large. That is rarely the case. Failure is not only common among the CEO
5: class, but to some degree, desirable. Nicholas Bloom again. You need that experience of adversity. Uh, in Silicon Valley, there's this old saying about you actually love to fund people that have uh, had one or two business failures, but three or more is pure carelessness.
6: Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I had my ass kicked in enough times. And, <laughs> yeah, I remember the moment. Um, in late 1980, 81. That's Ray Dalio. At the
0: time, he was running a small hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates.
6: I had calculated that American banks had led into foreign countries a lot more money than those countries were going to be able to pay back. Dalio's calculation turned out to be right. This brought him a lot of
0: attention from Wall Street. He was asked to testify before Congress. Dalio told anyone
6: who would listen that the looming debt crisis would inevitably lead to a stock market crash. I was so wrong. I had to let clients go. I lost money. i got So broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad and letting go people who were like extended family. It was literally down to me. That was a very painful experience, but it was one of the best experiences that happened in my life because it changed my perspective from thinking I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right? Dalio rebuilt Bridgewater from scratch. And that began the whole process of trying to find the smartest people I can find who disagree with me and be curious about what they think to create a culture in which there's independent thinking. Bridgewater would become famous for using algorithms to make decisions and for practicing what Dalio called radical honesty
0: and radical transparency.
6: The senior partner said that um, you're making people uncomfortable, you're demoralizing them with your straightforwardness.
0: But it worked. Bridgewater is now the biggest hedge fund in the world. 1,500 employees, roughly $160 billion under management. Dalio, who recently stepped down as co-CEO, has a net worth of around $17 billion. He traces his success back to having weathered and learned from that early failure.
6: We have a challenge of being able to deal with our own imperfections. And our own weaknesses, um, and our own being wrong, and our society reinforces that. It's reinforced in schools about you know, okay, you got the grades right, you're right, or you're right, or you're right, or right. It doesn't reinforce the notion of failure and learning from failures and that whole experience.
1: Well, we've made plenty of mistakes, as everybody in this business has. David Rubenstein again from the Carlyle Group. Anybody that tells you they haven't made a mistake probably really isn't in the business or isn't being honest. Carlyle is a private equity firm,
0: buying established companies, sometimes replacing their CEOs, and ultimately
1: selling them off. This is not to be confused with a venture capital firm, which generally funds startups. I don't think I have the skill set in venture capital. I passed on Facebook when Mark Zuckerberg was in college, and I had a chance to be an early owner of Amazon and, and effectively turn it down. Still, Rubenstein is among the most experienced people on the
0: planet when it comes to observing CEOs. Carlyle has acquired or invested in nearly 600 companies in aerospace, healthcare, energy, media, financial
1: services, you name it. So Rubenstein has formed some rules of thumb. Running companies is different than getting them off the ground. I think it's much harder to get them off the ground. But generally, the companies that are going to make it, with some exceptions, are the companies that have a CEO founder who has driven the company for the first couple years and really driven it to success. And then you bring in a CEO who's better at managing a more mature company than somebody who's getting it uh, off the ground. Some of the greatest managers of uh, companies in the world are not great entrepreneurs. And some great entrepreneurs are not really good at managing companies. In
0: the latter category, Travis Kalanick of Uber comes to mind. Great entrepreneur as a manager, much less great, which is why Kalanick is no longer the CEO of Uber. As for successful CEOs who weren't entrepreneurs, there's Lou Gerstner who ran IBM and RJR Nabisco, Alan Mulally who ran Ford and before that, a division of Boeing. But what
1: about the third group? company founders who go on to successfully run their firm. It's a rare person like Bill Gates, who was an entrepreneur and also was a very effective CEO for many, many years. The high profile nature of those
0: uh, relatively few excellent founder CEOs, you mentioned Bill Gates, you know, you could say Mark Zuckerberg at this point could say Jeff Bezos at this point you could right. say Steve Jobs while he was alive do you think they give a kind of skewed anomalous view of what the CEO should be in other words it should be the founder they're the or at least it, it would be best if
1: it were the founder well clearly they get all the attention and so it does give people something to aspire to but probably most companies 5 years into the formation of the company are not being run by the person who conceived of the company might have started it. It's just a different skill set and very few people have the skill set that Jeff Bezos exhibited or Bill Gates exhibited. It just usually doesn't happen.
0: In the case of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, it wasn't at all clear that the founder would make it as the
2: CEO. I thought he showed an incredible audacity to not learn and listen as a leader. That's Jeff Sonnenfeld, a leadership scholar at Yale. Oh my gosh, has he changed. And he's he had a great board, great mentors, and also he's just been a great learner. He has been remarkably different now as a leader than he was when he first
10: became CEO. I actually think the most important thing is what decisions and what process on a day-to-day basis you choose to let people have the freedom to do and just not get involved with.
0: And that's Zuckerberg.
10: A huge part of, of how Facebook works is giving a large amount of freedom to our engineers, the company, and to people who use the product um, to make with it what they will, right? And and trusting people to do that rather than... Was that hard for you to get to or? I think it's hard every day. I think Uh. because when you're running something, you of course have the ability to make as many of the decisions as you would like. So the, the real art, I think, is not Um, not when you know that you have someone who's a superstar who's going to make great decisions, but deciding to let people do things that you disagree with because on principle and um, you know it's just going to free up more creativity and and people will feel like there's more potential to try different things in the future that may be better um, if you let them go do those things, even if you disagree with them.
8: Too many young entrepreneurs just want to cling on to everything and um, they're they're not good delegators. Richard Branson again, the founder of Virgin. If I'm ever giving a talk to a group of young business people, I will tell them, you know, go and, go and take a week out to find somebody as good or better than yourself.
0: I know that once when you were asked how involved you are in the mechanics of your businesses, um, you said, I don't understand these things completely. And you said, I've never been able to know the difference between net and gross. I'm, I'm guessing you were exaggerating at least a little bit or no?
8: Well, I'm, I'm quite badly dyslexic. And um, it was on my 50th birthday that um, I was having a meeting with a group of executives. And, and I asked the question is that good news or bad news? When some figures were given to me. And, and one of the executives took me outside the room and he had a, some colouring pencils and he had a blank sheet of paper and he coloured in this piece of paper blue. And then he put a net. Uh, fishing net amongst it, and he put little fish in the fishing net and um, he said richard um i don 't think you know the difference between net and gross, and let me simplify it for you. The fish in the net are your profit, and the all the fish that are not in the net are your are your gross turnover and um hey presto, I got it and um, uh, and ever since then i 've been you know very swankily saying net profit and gross turnover and
0: Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, okay, the CEO chair is suddenly
2: empty, and you've got to fill it. What happens now? We can't take one of these knuckle-dragging drones from within to save us.
4: Even the day before, they told me that I was going to be CEO. I didn't think that I was going to become CEO. I
11: was on the sidelines thinking what, what I would do if I got it. And when I got it, I did it. Tradition
0: versus change, insiders versus outsiders, Microsoft versus the world. That's coming up right after this. Free economics radio is sponsored by walmart plus walmart plus is the membership that helps you save on things you expect plus the things you don't the plus in walmart plus stands for all the ways you can save walmart plus's suite of benefits can be used every day to help members save time and money members save on free delivery free shipping gas discounts plus so much more with walmart plus members save on this plus so much more Start a free 30 day trial at www.walmartplus.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by the Active Cash Credit Card. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases. Earn 2% cash rewards on that workout class you want to try and on the foam roller you need afterwards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Where do CEOs come from? First of all, keep
5: in mind that small firms vastly outnumber large ones. When people mention CEO, they think of an older white man in charge of a company of 10,000 people. In fact, there are six million companies in America. The median company, so the 50th percentile, has three employees and the most common company has one. But let's say we are talking about a big company. Maybe it's
0: a startup like Facebook or Uber that shot into the stratosphere. Maybe it's an old-timer, like General Electric or PepsiCo. Where does the ideal CEO come from? Is it an insider who knows the culture, who's got institutional memory, or an outsider with fresh eyes and instincts? To what degree, and on which dimensions, should the incoming CEO resemble the outgoing one? Let's start this conversation with Jack Welch, who became CEO of GE after 20 years at the company. You were ultimately appointed CEO by Reg Jones. You you were very different from him. He was kind of buttoned down, formal, classically trained in a way, and British. And you were more scrappy, Boston area. Said what you thought. <laughs> didn't didn't necessarily care that much how people received it. It was a, it was a fascinating handoff from him to you, and it's amazing that he saw in you, uh, you know, what others may not have seen. I'm curious. You were there a long time before that day. I, I wonder how much you were motivated to stay and rise by your desire to change the way the company was run because you and he both acknowledged that at the time you took over, GE needed a lot of change.
11: Yeah, I had an enormous thirst to get my hands on it. And so obviously I was on the sidelines thinking what, what I would do if I got it. And when I got it, I did it. (laughs) You make it sound pretty easy. Well, frankly, it's a lot easier to come up in a company and see its foibles from the bottom through the middle than be brought in as a hero at the top and know nothing of the infrastructure or the vibes of the place.
0: Welch eliminated many of GE's business units, and he let go so many employees that he came to be known as Neutron Jack. Doing so, he argued, was how GE was going to win, and it didn't help
11: any employee to pretend that they were better than they were. It's a sin if people come to work not knowing where they stand. Everybody who works for you must know what, where they stand, what their boss thinks about them, what the company thinks about them. This idea of false kindness is pure nonsense, pure nonsense.
0: Jack Welch was not everyone's favorite flavor. Some said he was abrasive, that his cost-cutting was inhumane. Others said he got lucky, turning GE into more of a finance company during what turned out to be a huge stock market run-up. Whatever the case, his tenure as CEO, from a performance perspective, was
11: extraordinary. We were doing $26 billion in sales with $1.4 billion of profit. And we had 420,000 employees. Okay, that was the early 1980s. 20 years later, we were doing $150 billion in sales, plus or minus, and we were making $15 billion. And we had 300,000 employees instead of 420. So either we were fat before and we needed to move or something's different.
0: It's a sample set of exactly one, but Jack Welch is evidence that it's possible for an insider to take over and kickstart a legacy firm. But what if GE had brought in an outsider? Maybe they would have done even better. For a firm in need of big change... You'd think that an external CEO
2: might have all sorts of advantages, wouldn't you? The truth is just the opposite. The research slightly favors the objective internal person to make the big changes. That, again, is Jeff Sonnenfeld from Yale. They know where the problems are, where the bodies are buried. They also know where the opportunities are. An objective, smart, honest, intelligent insider is generally a much better pick than somebody from the outside. Here are some numbers to back up what
0: Sonnenfeld's saying. A 2009 academic study, which analyzed established public companies from 1986 to 2005, found that internally promoted CEOs led to at least a 25% better total financial performance than external hires. A 2010 study by Booz & Company similarly found that in seven of the 10 previous years, Insider CEOs delivered higher market returns than external hires. And yet, external hiring seems to be on the rise. In 2013, between 20 and 30 percent of boards replaced outgoing CEOs with external hires. A few decades ago, that number was only 8 to 10 percent. Outside hires also tend to be more expensive. Their median pay is $3 million more than for inside hires. So an external hire will, on average, cost you more and perform worse. And yet, that's the trend.
2: What has happened in this oh-so-troubling governance days of this new millennia is insiders are often disparaged way too quickly as boards have taken on with a messianic zeal a belief that whoever our savior is for the next uh, CEO, it ought to be somebody from the outside. Because, hey, if this company is not performing perfectly... We can't take one of these knuckle-dragging drones from within to save us. With the outside, you have no idea if that person has gotten a lot of credit because of a biased relationship with the search firm, or maybe that person had been part of a successful operation in a strong-performing company and is benefiting from the afterglow of other people's work, whereas in the inside, the person, you know when they've tripped. So often we give too much attention to mistakes from an insider, but an insider... We can judge how they've learned, how they've come back from setbacks and mistakes. And an insider tends to be a much better choice. In 2014, Microsoft, one of the
0: biggest companies in the world, found itself searching for a CEO. Steve Ballmer had announced he was stepping down. He'd been at Microsoft forever, the 30th employee hired. And he was just its second CEO after co-founder Bill Gates. A lot of names were mentioned as Microsoft searched for its next CEO. Many of them were high-profile outsiders. One name rarely mentioned was Satya Nadella. He was a relatively low-profile insider, a computer scientist who'd been at the firm since 1992. And yet, Nadella was the ultimate choice. You make no secret of it that that a lot of people were hoping for an outsider to be appointed CEO of Microsoft, um, but you're a lifer. I gather there
9: wasn't a lot of enthusiasm internally when you were named. As you said, I'm a consummate insider, but the one thing that I've tried to do, uh, being someone who's grown up in Microsoft, is have as objective an outside-in view. He was a very humble
2: guy. That, again, is CEO watcher Jeff Sonnenfeld. He was never going for the bright lights and trumpets. There was no grandiosity about him. And he was quietly but prophetically building up The cloud business that wasn't, you know, Bill Gates or Steve Ballmer's front burner topic, uh, and yet he saw what was coming. And as CEO, one of the things he's done is by increasing market cap since he's been in there in just, what, three years, just, just over three years, by $250 billion.
0: That $250 billion figure was accurate when we spoke with Sonnenfeld, but that was a few months back. As of today, Microsoft's market cap has increased by more than $400
2: billion since Nadella took over. Its share price more than doubling. But that tells only a small part of the story because he did come into a culture that had become very bureaucratic. It had become possessed by very strong turf issues. And you might say, well, how did he do it? Just talking with insiders in there. uh, There's an absolute genuine collaborative decision making on anything large or small that there, it isn't driven by fiefdoms, nothing by imperial decree. There's an accessibility and a friendliness, almost a playfulness that he's brought in to a company where you, you just wouldn't have thought it was possible at this life stage to do it. What he did to revive the culture is, is really, is incredible. Nadella himself attributes his management success
0: to one word. Empathy. He wasn't always so
9: empathic. I always ask myself, you know, at, at whatever, at 25 when I was interviewing and somebody says, what would you do if you you see a baby on the street uh, crying and after having fallen down? Uh, I answered with, you know, thinking this is some trip question. Maybe there's some algorithm that I'm missing uh, and said, I'll call 911 uh, only to have uh, that manager, wake, you know, get up and <laughs> walk me out of the room saying, you know, that's the absolute bullshit answer. Uh, and if, if you see a baby falling down, you pick them up and hugged them. And I was devastated because I remember thinking about it and I say, how could I not get that?
0: By Nadella's own admission, it took an even more dramatic event for
9: him to get it. On the 13th of August in 1996 at 1129, our uh, uh, life changed. His wife, Anu, an
0: architect, had just given birth to their first child, Zayn, he had a severe
9: case of cerebral palsy. It took me multiple years uh, to even understand what had happened because in some sense, um, I was more about, like, why did this happen to us? What happened to me? Uh, And it's only by observing my wife, um, you know, really step up, uh, give up her career, uh, and do all the things she was doing to care for Zane, that, that's when I realized nothing happened to me. In fact, uh, really something has happened to my son and it's time for me to step up and see life through his eyes and do what I'm, uh, I should do as a parent and as a father. Um, So that's, I think, perhaps the biggest lesson for me around empathy. And it's only developed through your life's experience. It's not something that's really endowed on you. Uh, But as long as But every passing year, with perhaps every passing mistake uh, you make, uh, you develop more of a sense of being able to see life through other people's eyes is going to make you more effective parent, more effective colleague, um, and a a more effective partner.
0: So you can see why the Microsoft board was impressed enough with Nadella to make him CEO, despite being a relatively low-profile insider. And that choice, so far at least, has paid off. But the fact is that many, many CEO searches look for a very, let's say a very typical
5: sort of candidate. I talked about this with the Stanford economist Nicholas Bloom. By the time you get to people with, Basically, you know, great education, charming individuals, uh, you know, some kind of prior experience, they're all in the frame for leadership. It sounds as though you're raising then a central problem or or challenge
0: at least, which is if everybody's always looking for CEOs who fit the CEO mold, then you're going to continue recruiting and installing a bunch of well-educated white men from middle or upper middle class backgrounds, which is, you know, I think we'd all agree is A, uh, potentially very discriminatory, but B, potentially idiotic because you're reducing your pool of potentially excellent
5: people. So how do you deal with that? Imagine if you were making a new type of soup and you decided to invent tomato soup. There's already a hundred different types of tomato soup out there, but if instead you went for something different, Uh, you know, hedgehog and chili soup. Most people would think it's horrible. They'd never go near it. But, you know, one in a hundred consumers would think that's kind of cool and try it out and you'd have a market. Much as it is with with CEOs, you actually really want diversity because you actually want to be different from your competitors. uh, And that, enables you to have the edge, it enables you to innovate. So sure, there's going to be a lot of, you know, white men CEOs, but given there's a lot of white men CEOs out there, actually, uh, there'd be a lot of payoff to having, you know, some something different because you have a different angle and that's where you can make money in business.
7: Are we actually going to find that people are starting to hire people with different views and different backgrounds and different experiences who we really believe are going to change the system and not just perpetuate it with different players? That's Ellen Powell. I am the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the Kapor Center and a venture partner at KPOR Capital. And I'm also CEO and co-founder of Project Include, a nonprofit oriented towards giving everyone a fair chance to succeed in tech.
0: Pow herself had a brief and stormy tenure as CEO, interim CEO technically, at Reddit. Some of the changes she made deeply upset the Reddit community.
7: At the end of the day, I think the board you know, didn't have a stomach for it. And, you know, they told me that they wanted me to reach, you know, either 350 million or 500 million users by the end of the year. And I just said, you know, like, no company has done that. So, that you know, I, I can't commit to doing that. And that ended up being the reason why they asked me to leave.
0: From her experience within firms and as a venture capitalist, Pau has found that the CEO playing field is quite unlevel. Tilted especially against women.
7: There's a perception that if you are pregnant, that you're no longer as good of a founder or as committed of a CEO. And we've seen story after story, I don't think there's any scientific research about it, but of, you know, CEOs hiding their pregnancies because they don't want to be perceived as less of an employee or less of a leader. And, you know, I had a coworker who I think she tried to hide her pregnancy for like five months. We'll
0: look more closely at gender and leadership in an upcoming episode about what's called the Glass Cliff. It'll feature Carol Bartz, the former Autodesk and Yahoo CEO we heard
3: from earlier. The guys that I worked with called me Carl because they didn't want their wives to know they were traveling with a female.
0: When Bartz took over Yahoo in 2009, the company was in a lot of trouble. She only lasted two and a half years.
3: Well, I was in a limo driving into New York City when I got a call from Roy Bostock, the chairman of the board, and told me I was fired. I was literally 20 minutes away from where he was physically located. He didn't have the nerve to see me face to face. I do not believe that that would have happened to a man. He didn't have the nerve. now. I like to think he didn't have the nerve because he, he knew I would have probably punched him out. But um, <laughs> And was he right? <laughs> might be right. I don't yeah. know. Why did
0: Carol Bartz, with such an excellent track record as CEO of Autodesk, fail as CEO at Yahoo? Is it because she was an outsider? Was it a strategic issue, a personality issue, maybe a timing issue? Or Maybe Carol Bartz's failure had nothing to do with Carol Bartz. Maybe Yahoo was just a company being blown sideways in a tech tornado where display ads were cratering and Google was killing everybody else in search. Bartz's successors didn't have a very good time either. Yahoo was at one point the world's most popular web destination with a market cap of more than $110 billion. Last year, it was sold to Verizon, for $4.5 billion. So maybe we should be cautious about ascribing too much blame or credit to a given CEO. There are a lot of factors to consider in any firm's success or failure. And as we've learned today, there's a huge variance in the backgrounds and styles and skills of different CEOs. There seems to be no secret sauce whatsoever, unless maybe it's luck. That said, we also learned that when it's time to pick a CEO, the numbers do seem to suggest that the best bet is a stable and experienced insider.
4: Even the day before, they told me that I was going to be CEO. I didn't think that I was going to be CEO. So there wasn't a plan to become CEO. The plan was to just keep doing a very, very good job and Uh, you know, focus on running uh, the job that I had and making sure the company was in a good place. I think one thing just led to another.
0: Indra Nui of PepsiCo is easily the most experienced, stable insider we've run across in our reporting on CEOs.
2: At one point, she was chief administrative officer, chief financial officer, and chief operating officer, basically all at once, and then took on the tasks over Christmas at one point, become also chief technology officer. Indra is an unbelievably brilliant person.
0: So coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, what's it like to take over a huge multinational food and beverage company just as the world decides that your food and beverages are a threat to humanity and
4: just as a global recession hits? One had to learn in a hurry how to run this company through extreme periods of adversity. And there's no book you can read. Uh, you have to develop the book as you go along. And that's what was really, really, really tough.
0: Indra Nui on how to run a company instead of getting run over by it. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Max Miller. Our staff also includes Allison Hockenberry, Merritt Jacob, Greg Rosalski, Stephanie Tam, Vera Carruthers, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. For this series, David Herman did the sound design with help from Dan DeZula, and the music you hear throughout our episodes was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com, where you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and find links to the underlying research. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at radio at Thanks for listening.
2: Life is a Highway. And on it, there will be many
11: chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
9: of a detour.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait. Autotrader.